admit it. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be uh, continuing on in that chapter, and the plan is to finish that chapter today. And uh, in your bulletin, you should have received a note sheet that you could uh, take notes on for this as well. There's a yellow sheet in there for our Connect Group studies. The Connect Groups tend to go through that study, um, and you can see that it's related to the sermon. It's built off of the sermon, but it's not always exactly the, the same path that the sermon takes, so it might bring up different things than were discussed this morning, but uh, it's a, uh, an opportunity for you to study in that capacity. And if you're not involved in a Connect Group, uh, we've got several of them. They're listed there in your bulletin, and uh, I would love to talk to you about them if uh, you're interested and not involved. We are, uh, as I said, reading from Genesis chapter 12, and I want to read to us from uh, starting in verse 10 of that chapter. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now, then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. Father, we pause in our morning to call upon your name once again. As we read this passage, we are amazed in some ways at Abraham's actions, and in other ways we recognize our own lack of faith, our own fear in his actions. And Father, we pray that this morning you would help us to learn from this passage what you would have us take away. Things about ourself, things about you. We pray that you would minister to us in this time. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is said that sometimes the greatest victories are followed by the worst defeats. And in the past uh, section, as we were looking at the beginning of chapter 12, we were looking at this amazing call that God placed on Abram, that here was Abram living in a land far away, and he had settled there, and here he was called to come away from that land, to come away from 
his father's house to come into a land that God would show him, unspecified as yet, to, uh, to, to dwell there. God said he would take care of him. God said he would bless him. God said he would actually give him that land. He said he would give him offspring enough to fill the place up, really offspring enough to fill the skies like the stars. And that was the call that God issued to Abram. And we looked last week and were a little bit amazed when we saw that Abraham did it, that he believed God and he left and he traveled. He took God at his word and he expressed very great faith and faith that was encouraging to us, faith that was pretty amazing, really. And when he got to Canaan, not only had he traveled there, not only had he left behind, behind the things that he should, but he got to Canaan, he built altars to his God, though the Canaanites were then in the land, enemies, people who didn't worship uh, the one true God, and yet here was Abram building an altar and calling upon the name of the Lord, standing and preaching. This, this altar that I'm building here is for Yahweh, God Most High. He was calling on the name of the Lord in the midst of a pagan land. So what faith he had. What a great beginning we see with Abram. What an encouraging step. What an encouraging man. What a beginning to his life of faith. And then we come to the next paragraph. We come to our section today and we see a different story. We see a story of his faith getting tested. And we see right off the bat that the test gets very personal. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now he had just arrived here. He had just gotten to the land. He had obeyed God. He had traveled. He had he had gone there. He had arrived in the land. He still hasn't explored it. He's kind of traveled north to south. He's built a couple of altars and whatnot, and yet a famine comes on the land. And uh, this is one of, the, one of the more interesting things about this land is that in, in contrast to Egypt, for example, that has the regular flow and flooding of the Nile, that provides a, a regular uh, source of food and watering for their crops and all of that, they can be uh, usually very secure in their food supply. Uh, but when you go to the land that Abram has just entered, it's dependent upon the rains coming at the right time. And if those rains come too late, crops can fail. If they come too early, crops can fail. If they come too little or if they don't come at all, crops will fail. And there won't be produce. There won't be uh, anything for them to eat. Or if the rains come too much, crops can fail. They're very dependent upon the cycle of rain. And so it's a fragile land in that regard. And here we have Abram who's just come into the land. And the first thing we read about after he set up his, sets up his altars and, and calls on the name of the Lord, the first thing we read about is there's a famine in the land. And not just any old run-of-the-mill famine. This is a severe famine. It's enough that it causes Abram, who just got there, to pack up all of his stuff again. <laughs> and he's going to leave town. He's going to travel down and uh, he's going to go to Egypt. He's going to sojourn there and try and find some food. So we see that it's a very severe famine. And then in verse 12, we see Abram's fear. In verse, verse 11 and 12, we see <clears throat> when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, 
I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now, a couple things need to be noted before we go on. This is not normal. (laughs) This is not a normal response, first of all. And second of all, do you know how, how old Sarai is? You do the math real quick. She's 65. And here is a woman that is noteworthy enough that uh, Abram recognizes, and good man, recognize how beautiful his wife is. Husbands, you should recognize how beautiful your wife is. And he uh, knows that she is so beautiful, in fact, that when he goes into the land, at least this is his fear, the people there in the land will see her and recognize her beauty, and they will just kill him to take him out and get him out of the way, right? He, he, he has such regard for the beauty of his wife and, and so little regard for these men down in Egypt or, or whatever, but uh, he's afraid. He's afraid. And so he, in preparation to go into the land, he's, he's already done this once. If you think about it, he's traveled uh, in, in, in the beginning of chapter 12 from a land far away into the land of Canaan, but the fact is he was traveling from a Semitic group of people into a Semitic group of people. So they're sort of like cousins. Things are sort of familiar. It's like if you travel in Europe. Yeah, the difference between this part of Europe and that part of Europe is, is, is different. There can be some significant differences, but, but you kind of feel at home a little bit if you have kind of a, some kind of European background. But if you travel from a European place to, to an Asian place or somewhere in Africa, it feels very, very different. And you don't know what to expect. And, and Abram here is afraid that he does know what to expect. He's afraid that when he goes into this land, these people will be so crazy. These people will be so evil, perhaps. They will, they will be so driven by a desire to marry my wife that they will just kill me to get me out of the way, and then they will take my wife. That's his fear, and it's a, a very strong fear that he has. And so we see the plan there in verse 13 where he says, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. Just tell them you're my sister and not my wife. That'll solve our problems, right? Now, if you've read through this before, you might have been a little confused. And even if you've read through it again, you might have been a little confused. And you could study it for a week and be a little bit confused about how exactly Abram could come up with this plan and then how his wife could go along with it, right? Well, we're going to see that she comes up with some bad ideas herself sometimes, and he goes along with them. But I want to try and understand, and again, this is a little bit of speculation about what's going on in Abram's mind as he makes this plan, okay? But let's think about the situation, try and, try and understand what really is happening here. I don't, I don't really think that his plan is that she, you know, start a profile on, you know, Christian mingle or Egyptian mingle or whatever. He, he, he's not encouraging her to, like, to say to every man she meets, hey, I'm single, by the way, he, he's just my brother. I, I'm single. Yeah, he's just my brother, right? I don't, I don't think that's really what's going on. He's not actively trying to throw her to the wolves. I don't think that's really what's happening here. But I think that this is kind of the way he's thinking, okay? He's riddled with fear. He's traveling to a foreign place. And I've traveled to some foreign places, and I've traveled to some very foreign places. And some places feel far more foreign, and you're un- more unsure of yourself than in other places. And he has traveled to a very uh, foreign place, and in his fear-filled mind, 
He's thinking, okay, they're going to see, these Egyptians are going to see my wife and see how desirable she is for a wife, whether it's because she's just so gorgeous at 65, or perhaps it's that she comes with certain wealth and, and prominence because Abraham is a wealthy man, and, and, uh, and so she's got wealth as well, and so uh, maybe she's desirable for other reasons. I don't really know, but in his mind, she's so desirable to them that they're just going to kill him so that they can get to her. That's the biggest fear. Have you ever been racked by irrational fears? You know, I've seen, uh, I've seen running, you know, well, actually not running, their workout shirts or non-workout shirts that, that quotes a verse from Proverbs that says the, the, the wicked run when no one chases. <laughs> if no one's chasing you, what are you doing running? <laughs> well, that's an irrational fear that people have sometimes, right? We, we, might, we might be afraid of something that's not uh, real. It's not actually there. What that, what that verse means, uh, you know, the wicked runs when no one chases, is they're running from their fear. There's not even anyone back there. There's not anyone trying to kill them, but they're, they're, they're worked up and they think someone's after them, right? It's irrational. Well, he's got this irrational fear that actually turns out to be somewhat rational. But if his fear comes, uh, comes to fruition, what's going to happen is that they're going to kill Abram, and now Sarai will be a widow, and as a widow, she will be defenseless, and so then they can scoop in, and they can marry her, and they can do what they want with her, and so he would be dead, she would be defenseless, they would immediately take her, so that's his fear of what's going to happen. However, he's thinking in his mind, if Abram was the brother then first of all, he would be no threat in their eyes, and thus he wouldn't have a target on his back. And secondly, she wouldn't be defenseless because they wouldn't have to kill him. He would be someone that they would bargain with to seek to marry his wife. He would be someone to negotiate with about his sister rather than someone to kill because she is his wife. And so in this scenario, Sarai would not be in immediate danger and that would put Abram in a position of strength where he's now bargaining because she's so desirable to them that he can actually be protected for one thing. He can prolong his days and he could probably grow rich through this if he does it right in bargaining with these men about his uh, wife slash sister. You see, a, a brother traveling with an unmarried sister would be in a position of authority over her. He would be in a position of protectorship or guardianship over her. He would be the one that would have the right to negotiate marrying her off. He would, he would be the one to get to negotiate the bride price. And so his, his trick is tricky, and it's uh, not rooted in faith, but I don't think it's quite as evil, maybe, as we read it at first blush. Just tell him you're single and marry whoever comes along. I don't think that's his plan. I think it's I think it's more devious than that. I think there are more layer, layers to that. And I don't think this is too far a stretch if you think about the family that uh, Abraham came from. In chapter 24, um, uh, Laban is going to negotiate uh, with the servant of Isaac to uh, try and, uh, and get a little extra out of Isaac, and try and negotiate for a little bit of a stronger position when he marries off his sister. And then later on in chapters 29, 30, and 31 with the, the whole story of Jacob, you remember Jacob goes into the land, finds Laban, and here Jacob is single, 
And he sees these sisters, and one of them in particular is gorgeous, and he really wants to marry her. And what does Laban do? Well, he negotiates. Well, in this situation, he's the dad, but he had done the same thing when he was just the brother. He negotiates, and he negotiates seven and then 14 years of free labor out of Jacob because he's auctioning off, because he's, he's the one who gets to negotiate and, and define the bride price for these two sisters. So I think it's not too far a stretch that, 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 you know, that Laban came up with the idea and Abraham kind of came up with a similar idea. I don't know. Maybe Abraham is just a jerk and not a devious jerk. I don't know. I'm, I'm not trying to defend Abram in any way here, but, but uh, be that as it may, we don't really see his faith shining through. Here we saw in the beginning, we saw in, in the beginning of chapter 12, we were astounded that he was willing just to leave everything, hearth and home, to go. And now the next paragraph, and he's shaking in his boots and he's going to offer, offer up his wife. A couple of points of application here before we move on, uh, just from this whole section here. The first point of application is this, don't, don't be deceived. Faith and obedience are not always rewarded with freedom from hardship and testing. Now, why do I say that from this passage? Because he had just traveled obediently, faithfully from a foreign land into the land of Canaan. He has just gotten there. He has just received the promise that I will give this land to your offspring. And what's the next thing that happens? He's gotten there. He's only shown faith. He's only shown obedience. And there was a famine in the land. A famine severe enough that he felt like he had to leave town to get food. He enters into this place that's supposed to be this glorious blessing from God. He's been obedient. He's been faithful. And what does he confront at step one? Famine. Hardship. And we see this again and again throughout Scripture, particularly the book of Job. This is spelled out for us big time. Faith and obedience are not always rewarded with freedom from hardship and testing. And we see that here in his life, that it's not his fault that the famine came to the land. Now, everything after that's his fault. And he's got plenty of fault in the situation, but he's been obedient and all of a sudden there's a famine so severe that it would drive him out of the land. That's, that's just a, a point in passing, and really that's a large part of uh, what the book of Job is about. But there's a second point of application that's similar to the first one, but it's the flip side. Take heart. Hardship and testing aren't always caused by disobedience and lack of faith. You may have run across a patch in your life of severe hardship, and you just don't know. And you're asking yourself, what have I done to deserve this? What did I do, Lord? Why me? Well, there may be something in your life. There may be things that you can repent of. There may be things that you've done that have caused that situation to come about. I, I don't know the situation. But the hardship doesn't necessarily come from lack of faith and from disobedience. Abram has been obedient to this point when the famine shows up, and yet there it is. So when you're assessing your hardship and when you're assessing the difficulty that you're, that you're looking at in your life, don't automatically think, well, clearly I did something wrong. Clearly I brought this about. Or maybe you're looking at someone else's life and you're seeing suffering in their life and you're tempted to say, you obviously did something wrong. All right? Job's friends loved that part. No, we read 
briefly here in, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, a verse we looked at in Sunday school this morning. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. That's a good gift from God. And I don't know exactly what He's accomplishing in your life through that suffering. It's pointing Him to you. Perhaps it's revealing areas uh, that you can grow, but it's directing you to Christ. And so as you look at an area of suffering, as you see something in your own life that's a, a thorn in the flesh, that's awful, don't automatically leap to the conclusion that it's because you did something wrong and made God angry. This could be just God's good hand ministering to you, and you will understand much, much later or perhaps in glory. But it is for your good, Christian. And there's another point of application before we move on from this. Past faith does not avail for today. Abram was so faithful, had such exemplary faith in verses 1 through 9, and he falls flat on his face in verses 10 and following. Past faith does not avail for today. Abram should have trusted God in the famine like he trusted Him when he left Haran and came to Canaan. He probably should have stayed in the land despite the famine. And he certainly should have trusted his life to the Lord rather than to a harebrained scheme of passing off his wife as his sister. Past faith does not avail for today. I sometimes have people come into my office and they're, they're asking, they're doubting their own salvation. And they, they want to know, am I really saved? And those are tough conversations. You want to encourage the person. You want to direct the person to Christ. You want them really to be looking to Christ. And so when I'm talking to them, I don't take them back to once upon a time when they prayed a prayer. I know a man who tried to encourage himself about his own salvation by doing that. That he would tell me when he was struggling in his faith, he'd say, I remember back in the day, I remember when these things were happening and my faith was strong and I, and, and I trusted the Lord. And, and, and so because of that, looking years in the past, because of that, I, I know I'm saved. No, that's, that's past faith. That's not really the question. And that's not really the encouragement. The encouragement is look to Christ now. Do you believe in Him now? Are you trusting in Him now? We don't get to bank that in the past as if it's going to avail in the future. Trust the Lord today. Well, that brings us to our second part here, and this is where the wife takes the fall. Now, this is amazing, verse 14, because I talked already about, you know, Abram. This is something he did right, recognizing the beauty of his wife. Right? He should have done that. You're so gorgeous, honey. You are so gorgeous that these men, when they see you, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, you know, they're going to do whatever it takes to make you their own, right? Okay, so far so good, Abram. Like, I'm not, I'm not entirely against that. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. They recognized the same thing. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. So this wasn't just the charmed eye of a, of a doting husband. This was a fact about her that others recognized as well. 
Again, what these qualities were and how it was that, that, uh, that here this uh, woman who is at retirement age and all that could, could uh, you know, cause court intrigues in Egypt with her beauty. I, I don't understand. It's not explained. I'd, I'll really move on, but, but it's amazing. It's pretty impressive, and she's an impressive, impressive woman. And she's so impressive not just to her husband, though his being impressed is a little questionable if he's willing then also to offer her up like this. But nevertheless, it's not just him. They recognize the same thing. These princes see her. They recognize she's a, she's a lovely catch. And then they go talk to Pharaoh about it. So now it's spread all over the court. Everybody knows about Sarah's appeal. And so, uh, so far, you know, the Abraham's uh, evil scheme here seems to be working, if, if my understanding of his scheme is correct. But you see in verse 15, Sarai's abduction. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So whatever Abram actually had in mind, whatever he was really trying to do, what ends up happening is they see her and they take her, right? So has he lost his bargaining position? You know, maybe he thought he was going to be able to string them along for a while until the famine went away in the land and he was going to be able to escape, or, or maybe he was just going to get rich out of this deal and somehow uh, be able to back out of the wedding, or I, I don't have any idea. But what ends up happening is they see her and they take her. So the game has just changed. Everything's just changed. She is now in Pharaoh's household. She's been brought into the harem. She's been taken, and she's no longer protected in the same way that she was. Before we move on from here, I just want to make an observation. When the faith of men fails, it, it's usually the women who suffer the most. We're going to see about Abram. I mean, unless he's got some sort of mental anguish, which he probably does. He's enriched in other ways. And yet here is Sarai, held hostage, as it were, taken by force into the harem. When the faith of men fails... It's usually the women who suffer the most. And if you, if you don't believe that, if you're questioning about that, go home this afternoon and read the book of Judges. And you will see how women are treated from the beginning to the end. And as the faith of Israel fails and deteriorates, as everyone does what is evil in their own eyes, or what is good in their own eyes, we know it's evil more often than not, that everyone does what is good in their own eyes, you see the women get treated worse and worse and worse and worse. So that by the end, they're, they're objects, possessions, they can be bought and sold and traded. Husbands, dads, future husbands and dads, men, your faith will have a profound impact on those around you. To many men, church and faith seem like womanish arenas. All women go to church, women read the Bible. Women do that kind of stuff. You know, men, the boys will be boys. Men, your faith will have an outsized impact on those around you, especially on those given into your care. So that's a, an, an encouragement for us, men, to take our faith seriously, to take this Word of God seriously, that we would do business with God, that we would be the ones looking to God, that we would be the ones trusting in Him, that we would be the ones resting in Him, that we would be the ones leading those around us and doing the same thing. So we see Sarai's abduction, 
in verse 16, I don't know if this is irony. I, I, I get confused about the definition of irony, but this is surprising. Verse 16, and for her sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So here Sarai is in the harem, trying to figure out what in the world she's going to do, how she's going to survive this whole thing, what's going to happen to her. And Abram's bank account is just growing. He's, he's on the outside, and he's benefiting from this. He's, he's getting all the reward from, uh, from the favor of Pharaoh. So he's receiving heaps of blessing and riches from Pharaoh. Well, then we see a turn in the story here where the sinner rebukes the saint. This is the situation. It's an awful situation. Abram, the man of faith, is profiting off of essentially the sale of his wife slash sister. She's locked up and he's benefiting. This is a terrible, terrible situation. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So these plagues, great plagues come upon the house of Pharaoh. Some sort of skin condition, some sort of plague in their body. They're sick. They're, they're getting ill because of this situation. Now, it's interesting. We haven't heard anything from the Lord in some time. Since they left the land here, we've not heard from the Lord. They've traveled, they've done this stuff, and they've had conversations back and forth, and these things have happened and all that. But then you have the Lord show up, and it's not to speak, and it's not really in gentleness and kindness that He shows up, but He shows up in verse 17, and He afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. So there's suffering now in the house of Pharaoh. There's trouble that's been brought upon them because of Sarai, Abram's wife. The author drives it home. You know, Sarai, who was calling uh, herself Abram's sister, and Pharaoh thought that was his sister, was actually Abram's wife. And so these plagues come upon the house because she's been taken into the royal harem. Well, we see Pharaoh's rebuke in verse 18 and 19. Somehow, Pharaoh figures out what's going on. So we see this in 18 and 19. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. I don't know how he figured it out. I don't know if the Lord told him. I don't know if, if, uh, if somehow he put two and two together and, and figured it out on his own or maybe Sarai spilled the beans. I don't know. It just doesn't say. But he figured it out. He knew where it came from and he went to Abram. And here you've got this situation where Abram, who is the man of faith, the man that the New Testament looks back on and gives such accolades to for his trust in God. This is God's man. And you've got a pagan king chewing him out for being ungodly. A rebuke from a sinner to God's man. This is striking. This is striking. And he says to him, what have you done? What have you done? That's a question that makes you sweat when you're the one who's done something. Someone comes to you and says, what have you done? 
What do they know? What do I tell them? Which, which thing are we talking about here? I need more. Right? That's the question that God asked Eve after she took from the fruit and gave to her husband and he took. And God shows up and God says to Eve, what have you done? It's the same question that God asked Cain after Cain had killed his brother Abel. God comes to him and says, what have you done? That, that question has a, has a way of stopping everything else and making you assess your actions. That's why I say it causes you to sweat. I have a very clear recollection of one time when I was about 16, and, and uh, I may have told this story before, but uh, I, had, I had gone to town, and we lived at, far out of town, so it was a long trip and, and whatnot. I'd gone to town, taken my brother with me. Well, my brother would have been 12 at the time. So here, a 16-year-old and a 12-year-old just took off and went to town, didn't tell anybody, and stayed out late. I don't know how late we got home, but when I got home, I heard, what have you done? And I very distinctly remember the sweat that beaded out on my legs. <laughs> my dad says that to me. <laughs> it stops you and causes you to assess your situation. And now he's getting that question, not from God, and not from some godly counselor that you can kind of be humble before and, and submit to. So you, you expect wise words from them. This is from a pagan king, an unbeliever, coming to him. Abram, what have you done? You know things are bad. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know things are bad when an unbeliever rightly and in a godly fashion rebukes a believer. There's a problem. So that's Pharaoh's rebuke, and we, we close this section with Abram's exodus. Look at verse 20. Abram doesn't even say anything. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The next, the next verse says, so Abram went up from Egypt. <laughs> he obeyed, right? Pharaoh returns Abram's wife to him, and he evicts him. You can keep your stuff and keep your sister, who is your wife, and get out of here. What have you done? So he leaves. And that's the close of the story. That's going to transition into to another, another interesting story. So preacher, what are you going to do with that? That's what you're asking yourself. Here's the passage. Here's the story. What are we going to, what are we going to say about it? Well, a couple of things, right? Uh, and and the, to begin with, kind of a doctrinal or a textual observation here. Have you noticed some familiar elements in this story? Not just because you've read chapter 12, verses 10 through 20 a number of times before, but because you've read the rest of the Bible, and particularly you've read the, the rest of Genesis. There are some familiar elements that I want to point out to us, and these are on purpose, okay? First of all, the word famine and severe famine in the land. Did you catch that? When you read that, you may have like accidentally jumped to another verse later on. Abram goes down to Egypt because there was a severe famine in the land. And that's going to happen again, by the way, in Isaac's day, and will uh, give rise to a similar situation with Isaac and his wife that's, that's uh, not very encouraging either. But there's also a famine later that Pharaoh's going to dream about. And by the way, this passage is the first mention of Pharaoh in Genesis. And later on in Genesis, we're going to read a whole lot about Pharaoh, and particularly about Pharaoh dreaming 
about famine and Joseph coming on the scene and interpreting famine for him and what all of this means. Joseph's going to interpret that for him, and then uh, that same famine will eventually drive Jacob and all of his family down into Egypt in search of food. This has happened before. What's happening in chapter 12 will happen again to the entire people in later chapters in Genesis. And of course, these, uh, the family that comes down into the land, they're going to remain as guests of Pharaoh for 400 years, aren't they? They'll be in the land, and by the way, they'll sort of be locked up. They'll sort of be in a similar position uh, as, a, as a nation to what has happened with Sarai. God's going to tell Abram, by the way, about that situation, that they will go into a foreign land that's not theirs, and they will reside there for 400 years, and then these other things will happen. God's going to tell Abram about that. But that's the first thing that, that we should note. When you read that word famine, it should set off a light, particularly in Genesis. Secondly, the word plagues should, should, should cause us to think about something in regard to this same story. God strikes Pharaoh and his household with great plagues that cause Pharaoh to tell God's people to take their things and go. Have you ever heard that before? That same thing will happen in Exodus as the people have been in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. God sends a series of plagues upon them that ultimately results in Pharaoh telling them, take your stuff and go. Here it's in small scale. The book of Exodus is going to be writ large. And thirdly, plunder. The word plunder is not in here. But when Abram leaves Egypt, he does so with the increased riches that Pharaoh had given him. Remember, to, uh, for, uh, for his wife, for Sarai, he was blessing Abram by giving him all this wealth while he was there. And then when it's all over, the story's all done, Pharaoh tells him, take all your stuff and your wife and leave. He gets to leave with the riches that he gleaned in Egypt. Well, Israel will do the same thing when they leave Egypt in the Exodus. They will be enriched by what the Egyptians have given them. Right before they leave, they get to ask. It's called the plundering of Egypt. And they're given all this wealth that they then carry out of the land. Now, these things are intentional. They're in the text, and they're to point us intentionally to the larger story. And what makes me think that is, first of all, the people who are reading this story after Moses has written it, are the very people that have just seen that happen. This is written by Moses, the one who brought them through the Red Sea, the one who saw them to the mountain, the one who saw them out into the wilderness. And he's the one writing the first five books of the Bible. He's the one explaining to them their history so that when they look back here, they can recognize the pattern of what God is doing. This narrative is meant to prefigure the Exodus event where God rescues His people from slavery in Egypt, and He brings them into the Promised Land. And that exodus, when the people come out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, that exodus prevent, uh, uh, prefigures God rescuing sinners from their slavery to sin and ungodly masters. This event happened, and this is how it happened. The exodus event happened as it's described for us in the book of Exodus. And they are meant to prefigure for us and help us to look back and see and understand what we talked about in Sunday school this morning, redemption. For you and for me. Because we're all born in a state of captivity, in a state of sin and misery. We're all born 
slaves of sin and were liable to the punishment for that sin. The Father sent the Son to redeem for Himself a people for His own. And He did so at the cost of His own life. And as He entered into the place of our sin, Jesus took upon Himself the penalty of our misery. And this He did to free us from captivity, to give us new life, and to bring us into His own household. And so this story, as odd as it may seem, and it's odd and as difficult to understand uh, what could have motivated Abraham as it might be, and that's difficult. Ultimately, it points us to the fact that we need to be redeemed. We need to be brought out of slavery. And you may feel a little bit like Abram today. Maybe you've gotten yourself into the hot water of sin, or you find yourself in a place of fear and doubt, and maybe you've rested upon the strength of your faith and your obedience in the past. You're hoping it'll carry you through today. Look to God today as your rescuer. Confess where you find yourself and turn away from whatever you've been trusting in to trust in Christ, your Redeemer, instead. And He will forgive you and deliver you out of that bondage. And so, Christian, I don't know what context you find yourself in. I don't know what's going on in your life. But Abraham got himself into this mess. And very often we get ourselves into our own messes. Sometimes we suffer purely for the sake of Christ, through no fault of our own. And sometimes we just make a bed and we lie in it. And if that's you, confess that to Him. Look to Him. And turn from what it is you've been doing, what it is you've been trusting in, what it is you've been trusting in to save you. Trust in Him. And He will deliver you. Praise God that he didn't leave Abram and Sarai in Egypt to suffer all the consequences of their sin and their faithlessness. Imagine how the story would have gone. It wouldn't have been good. God did not leave them there. God rescued them out of there, and he did so not because uh, they eventually wised up, because they got found out, even by an evil king. And God in his providence was working to rescue that family. Not just that family, but their offspring. You think about all the history of the nation of Israel, all the offspring that that, uh, would physically come from Abraham. Ultimately, according to Galatians, summarized and fulfilled in Christ Himself. And so God, in taking this couple from that, is taking Christ from that. God is providentially at work, and praise God that He didn't leave them there to get their just desserts. And praise God that He does not leave us in our own Egypt, but delivers all who trust in Christ, delivers them from the domain of darkness, and transfers them into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, this passage is very difficult. 
difficult to understand uh, the motivations of a man of faith who would lie in such a fashion, who would endanger his wife in such a fashion, who would dishonor you in such a fashion. It's hard to understand Abraham. And it's hard to understand somewhat how it fits in the story, though we have grown accustomed to seeing the so-called heroes of the Bible being sinners just like us. We've grown accustomed to seeing that, that they are not the heroes, that ultimately you are the hero. You were the hero when you sent the plagues to Pharaoh. You were the hero when you worked behind the scenes providentially to make it so that Pharaoh would understand what the problem was and and cause him to confront Abram. And you worked providentially to send this couple out of the land back home and now enriched. So though it's difficult to look at this passage and difficult to focus on it, we can see your mighty hand at work redeeming this couple and through their offspring redeeming billions. Father, if there's anyone here who has gotten themselves into hot water, I pray that you would help them to look to you, confess to you the hot water they've boiled for themselves, that they would repent and that they would turn to you and find deliverance from that. And if there's anyone who, whose entire life consists of that, they don't They don't even know you. They're still in that state of sin and misery that they were born in. I pray that they would look to Christ, that they would lift up their eyes, that they would see your saving hand at work even in such sinners as these two, and that you would redeem them, that they would look to Christ, the one who has obeyed where they have not obeyed, who gave his life so that they wouldn't have to that by faith in Christ they would be rescued, be set free from that domain of darkness, delivered into the kingdom of Christ, glorious, wonderful, peaceful, union with you, peace with God. I pray that they would trust in you this morning. And Father, on this day that is the 21st anniversary of great tragedy in our country and shaping events of our world, we, we trust you and your providential hand even in this. And we pray that you would work savingly, that you would work redemptively, that you would utilize even awful, terrible events of terror to bring redemption to millions. We know your arm is not too short. We know you can do this, and we pray that you will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be a family up front who would love to pray with you if you need to pray with them. And uh, children, if you have filled out your blast zone, there will be a place over here you can get that checked. But may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.